0: Have you ever had a failed experiment? Tried something and it didn't work. Hopefully it wasn't a very expensive experiment. I was reminded recently about a very expensive failed experiment. Uh, And it was done by a man named Robert Owen in the 1800s. Robert Owen came to America in 1824 from Wales with a bunch of cash and a big dream. And his dream was for a utopian society. He, he dreamed of a place that everyone would get along and live in perfect harmony. In fact, he, he bought a town in Indiana and he renamed it New Harmony. And he welcomed anybody to come to this town because he believed that this town was, would be built on such principles of human behavior that it would be a perfect society, a utopia. But only about two years later, New Harmony was done. Experiment over. Um, Some inhabitants of the town tried to hang on and make it work, but it was finally dissolved in 1829, not due to any sort of starvation or economic problem, due to constant quarrels. People were fighting with each other. They couldn't get along. It was supposed to be new harmony. Like this is the new harmony. Failure. Didn't work. We actually have a letter from a guy who lived in new harmony. And these are the words he wrote. He wrote this. Reflecting on that experience it seemed that the difference of opinion tastes and purposes increased just in proportion to the demand for conformity two years were worn out in this way at the end of which I believe that not more than three persons had the least hope of success. We tried every conceivable form of organization and government. We had a world in miniature. We had enacted the French Revolution over again with despairing hearts instead of corpses as a result. It appeared, this is important, it appeared that it was nature's own inherent law of diversity that had conquered us. Our united interests, he puts in quotation marks, our united interests were directly at war with the individual people and circumstances and our instincts. Isn't that a striking comment on human nature, here was the perfect place. Here were the perfect, the perfect laws, and within two years, it had completely failed. They couldn't get along. This raises a question that's important, and it's simply this: How can people get along with people? It's important for two reasons, many reasons, but, but I'll, I'll give just two of them. It's a, this is a practical question. How can people get along with, with people? It's a practical question because this, this informs the way you're going to live the rest of your day. I mean, how can people get along with people? This, this impacts, for example, how you planned or failed to plan Valentine's Day this past week. This, this impacts everything about us. How can people get along with People but it's also a very profound question because when we ask this question and we look at this passage of scripture, we're looking at it in the context of the teaching that Paul is given in verses 1 through 4, in which he's, he's speaking to, he's writing to this group of people, a church in, in modern day Turkey, and he's telling them that they have been raised with Christ. He's telling them that they have this brand new life in Jesus, this life that has been given to them, not that they've achieved or worked for and been able to attain, but something that's been given to them. And the question is this when the life of Jesus, infuses people, when it empowers people, when it works in a community, not just individuals, but it works in relationships, what does the life of Jesus look like in a community? What does this Prince of Peace, what kind of influence does this Prince of Peace have when he brings people from death to life, puts them together, is the community gonna be marked by the same kind of selfish division that characterized their old way of life, or will there be a new harmony? That's why this question is important. It's not just a practical question for you and me, but it's also a profound question because it deeply impacts the testimony of Jesus Christ. When Jesus brings people from death to life, when he puts them together, can they get along? Will they reflect the fact that he is the Lord of creation and of new creation, that he is the one who reconciles all things to himself? And this is the question that we must ask ourselves, okay? What is this community going to look like? What what is your family going to look like? What is our church, Trinity Baptist Church, going to look like in our relationships with each other? And to remind you where we are in the flow of this letter, we have introduced the topic of, of Christian growth. And in verses 1 through 4 of chapter 3, Paul has given the possibility of Christian growth, how it's possible. It's, because, it's possible because of our new life in Jesus. And then in verses 5 through the end of the chapter, and beyond the, the end of the chapter, he's talking about the practice of Christian growth. So the structure of the passage is this Christian growth, how it's possible, but Christian growth also, how it's practiced. And we saw last time that the way it's practiced, it's practiced by putting off certain vices associated with our old way of life including a wrong view of sex and a wrong view of the way we use our speech, a wrong use of speech. Put away sexual immorality and uncleanness and all these kinds of things. And and make sure that the way you're talking is a way that reflects the lordship of Jesus Christ. That's the practice of Christian growth. It involves putting off things, but it also involves putting on certain things. And that's the text that we read beginning in verse 12. So the central idea of this message, which I'm trying to pull together the teaching of Paul in verses 12, 13, and 14, is this. Life in Christ means loving others. The central central idea here. Life in Christ, why? Because we're talking about, Paul has just said, if you then look at verse 1 of chapter 3, if you have been raised with Christ, Christ is your life, so life in Christ means loving others. And I say loving others because in verse 14, Paul says, above all these, put on what? Put on love, which binds everything together in perfect unity. So life in Christ means loving others, and there are just two parts to this sermon, okay? So here's your brief mental map of where I'm going. We see there is a, a clear logic in the progression of these virtues that we see beginning in verse 12. See if you can discern this, this logic here. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. Okay, what are we supposed to put on? What virtues are we supposed to have that will allow us to live in the harmony that, uh, that Christ wants for us? Here they are. Compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience Bearing with one another, that's forbearance. And forgiving each other, that's forgiveness. Okay, there is a progression here. And I want to show you that the first four qualities, the first four virtues, speak to the way we are to treat other people. And then the next three, not counting love, which covers everything, the next three speak to the way we are to respond when others mistreat us. So... Life in Christ means loving others in how you treat them and when they mistreat you. Those are the two divisions of our, of our, of our sermon. In, life in Christ means loving others first in how you treat them, but also when they mistreat you. So how are we supposed to treat people? Okay, how does life in Christ teach us to treat other people. We see this first all. I'm going to to go through these, these virtues one by one beginning with compassionate hearts. Compassionate hearts actually has this word for intestines in it. It has to do with the innards, the feeling that is evoked towards someone in need. Right? in order to have this sort of harmony in order to have this sort of community under the lordship of Jesus Christ who reconciles all things to himself Paul is saying you have to have this virtue that involves this when you see a need you have a feeling of compassion a heart of compassion this is exactly the response that Jesus himself had when he saw people in need Jesus saw these multitudes and they've been following him all day and listening to him teach and they didn't have any food and he said to his disciples, my insides just feel compassion for these people. I'm moved with compassion. This is the response that we have. It's the sort of feeling that we have toward people in need. And that's a virtue that Paul is saying we're supposed to put on. I would like you to note that there's something very special about this and that is you can't fake it. You can't command it. I command myself to feel deeply compassionate for that person. No, this is something that just, it comes, it wells up within us. So, compassionate hearts. And then the second one is kindness. Now, com- a compassionate heart is not enough. Right? It's one thing to feel compassionate. I feel so bad for that person. But, but that by itself w- would be pointless. It must be followed up by Kindness. Okay, and there is a sequence here because kindness is not just being nice. Kindness is actually doing something genuinely useful for another person. It's related to a, a, a word in, in the Greek language that means useful. Right? Kindness. So I, I feel compassion and I don't just say, "Oh," and then walk on. I do something about it. That's exactly what Jesus did. Going back to the example of Jesus, he looked on the, on the crowds, he felt compassion, and he did something about it. He healed the lame. He touched people with leprosy. He fed the hungry, right? Jesus' compassion welled up into acts of kindness and that is what Paul is saying, these virtues are are essential to a community that would thrive in its relationship with Jesus. Life in Christ means loving others, and loving others means treating them in this way. When you see them in need, you feel compassion. When you feel compassion, you act upon that compassion and do something genuinely useful for them, genuinely helpful for them. That's kindness. The third quality is humility. Humility reels with how we esteem ourselves with reference to other people. So if you can see the logic here we, We feel compassion to those who are in need we do something about it, right? But if our doing something about it produces this evaluation and I've helped them and I'm so much better than they are Well that would kind of undermine everything we just did right so the compassion and the kindness must be linked with humility What is humility? A lot of people think humility is just thinking bad about yourself. Oh, I can't do anything right. I can't do anything well. No, humility is is simply evaluating both yourself and others in light of an infinite standard who is God himself. That's why Peter writes in his first epistle, chapter chapter 5, he says, humble yourselves under what? The mighty hand of God. If you you, uh, evaluate yourself only in terms of other people, you will always find a reason to feel really good about yourself and you'll also find a reason to feel really bad about yourself. Because there's always going to be someone that's better than you at something and there's always going to be someone that's worse than you at something. You you can always create feelings of despair or pride if you make other people your standard of evaluation. But make God the standard of your evaluation and you realize, I am infinitely lower than God, and yet because of Jesus Christ, I am infinitely loved by God, and I and everyone else are in an equal plane before this infinitely holy, infinitely loving God, and therefore I, I see myself in light of that's humility. I can't be proud because of anything I've done for anybody. This compassion and kindness must be bolstered and informed by humility, but also meekness. Meekness. Meekness is not weakness. It's strength under control. Jesus was the meekest person who ever lived. Here is meekness in action. It is near the end of Jesus' life when he knows he's going to go into a garden and be betrayed by one of his own disciples. And he walks into an upper room. He, he walks into the upper room with his disciples. They go in that room in front of him. Is his 12 disciples, they've been around him for three years. And, and there's no servant to wash the feet. But there is a wash basin. And there is a towel. And, and all 12 of the disciples shuffle right past that wash basin. And they, they, may know, they may have noticed it. We don't know. They probably did. But I know this. They, no one offered to wash anybody else's feet. And John tells us that Jesus, knowing that he had come from the Father and that he was going to go back to the Father and knowing that he was going to suffer things on behalf of the people, he, he took, after supper, he took off his robe and he took up that servant's towel and he bound it around his waist and he brings the basin to the, the dirty feet of his disciples and he scrubs toenails. That's what Jesus did. That was not weakness That was strength under control. That was meekness. That was an understanding. Jesus is like, I don't have anything to prove. I don't have anything to lose by washing anyone's feet. The reason why we are not meek, the reason why we tend to be harsh, the reason why we tend to be vindictive, the reason why we tend to be uh, overbearing is because we are fearful Because we think we have something to prove, and we think we have something to lose. Jesus had nothing to lose, and he had nothing to prove. All he had to do was love. Meekness. Now, how many of you thinking after this list of four qualities, I've jotted them all down? They're on my to-do list for this week. I will schedule compassion into my into my daily calendar. I will schedule meekness in. I will schedule humility in. It's not something you can schedule into your calendar. It's not something you can just command. Compassionate hearts How do you tell yourself to feel compassion? You can't do it. That's why it goes back to the central point of this whole sermon is that it's life in Christ means loving, right? We can't do these things on our own. The answer to the question, if you're feeling helpless at all, if you're thinking, well, this is a high standard for harmonious living, you're absolutely right, which is why Paul grounds these commands in who you are in Jesus. The words that I skipped over when I went straight to the qualities were the very things we need most to hear. He said, put on then, what? Not as mere human beings who are fallen and wallowing in your self-centeredness. No, as God's chosen ones. As holy ones. As beloved ones. The reason why you can show love is because in Christ you have been loved. The reason why, as we're going to see in just a little bit, you can forgive is because in Christ you have been forgiven. The reason why you can have humility toward other people is because you know that you were dead in your trespasses and sins. There's no way you could have chosen God even if you had wanted to. You're an elect one. You're chosen. God chose you. You didn't choose him. That's what Paul means when he says God's chosen one. That creates humility. And so you can be compassionate. Compassionate not because of who you are in yourself, but because of who you are in Jesus. That's the whole logic of this chapter. First, the possibility of Christian life. If you've been raised with Christ, and then the practice of Christian life. Put off these vices of distortion and disruption. Put on these virtues that bring about harmony and beauty and unity and love. Now, it would be nice if everybody had these qualities be so nice if everyone had compassion on me when I was in need when everyone was meek and humble toward me but that doesn't happen and because of that we need more virtues We need virtues not only that inform us how to treat other people, but we need some virtues that tell us how to respond when other people mistreat us. And this is the second part here. Remember I said that life in Christ means loving other people. Loving other people in how we treat them, but also loving other people when others mistreat us. Let's look at these. Patience, bearing with one another, and forgiving one another. Right. So patience, forbearance, and forgiveness are three qualities that you and I need when we are wronged. And, and they go in ascending order. You see the, the, the sequence here. all right? Patience, s- smaller kinds of offenses. Forbearance gets a little bit more intense. Okay, forgiveness. There's a, there's a real offense here. There's something that's, that's been very hurtful. What is patience? Now, Patience is not just being boring or waiting around or being apathetic. Just to be clear, that's not what patience is. Pa- this, this word for patience has to do with patience toward other people. And it means more than just I'm waiting for them for a long time. Because the word, this word patience, in other versions it's translated long-suffering. And it always has to do when someone is acting in a way that is unjust toward me and I'm giving them opportunity after opportunity after opportunity to change. This word is used of God. It says, uh, Peter in one of his epistles says this about God, that he he had patience in the time of Noah because he was waiting for people to repent before he sent the flood. Opportunity after opportunity after opportunity to turn from their sinful ways. Peter also uses this when he says that we, we are to count the patience of the Lord as salvation. And the best way I know to illustrate it is this, this idea of patience. If you've ever been working with a child and trying to teach that child, and you ask the child a question like this, what's two plus two? Five. Okay, no, no, no. And you want them to get the right answer. And you're like, I think they know the right answer. So you say, okay, is that your final answer? six okay okay is, is that your final answer three right what are you doing you're giving opportunity after opportunity after opportunity for them to get it right that's what patience is someone treats you a certain way and it's not right and, and although you don't say it out loud you're thinking is this your final answer I'm gonna wait is that your final answer? You're giving the person, they're, they're acting unfairly, they're acting in an unjust way, but you're being patient with that. This is what God does for us. Like He doesn't give us what we deserve right when we deserve it. He gives us opportunities to turn and repent and that's what we need to do to other people. Believe me, there are people that do things to, uh, to you all the time that you don't deserve. That's when patience is needed. After all, Haven't you been shown patience? Hasn't God given you opportunities to change when you have been so wrong? When we're tested, we need patience. But we also need, when we're bothered, we need forbearance. Sometimes this word, if you look at this, forbearing one another, and if anyone has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, this idea of, okay, I can put up with this. Forbearance is the quality among people that keeps a molehill from getting turned into a mountain. Forbearance is the quality that prevents every little annoyance from being exploded into a confrontation. That's forbearance. And if you look in the context here, when Paul is listing certain people groups and ethnicities and religious backgrounds in verse 11, to look at verse 11, he's saying here, there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave-free, but Christ is all and in all. What he's saying is this, the the distinctions that used to splinter you apart have been dissolved because of who Jesus is, but those distinctions still remain. There's still circumcised and uncircumcised, Jew and non-Jew. There's still barbarians and Scythians in our midst these people that that the Greeks would think they're beneath our dignity. And yet all these people are in church together and they're trying to worship together and yet one person has such an annoying accent and this other person smells differently and this other person has this weird cultural baggage And, and if there's any ingredient for suspicion and hostility, it's the church in which people from different backgrounds are coming in and Paul says, this is a great time for everyone to forbear with each other. There are some things that you just need to overlook. There are some things that you just need to say, as they say in the South, bless your heart, right? It's, it's, it can be forborne, right? You can forbear it. But on the heels of forbearance, we have forgiveness. Why? Because sometimes the line between what you can forbear and what you need to forgive is a little fuzzy. A good rule of thumb is this. Forbear when you can, and if you can't, forgive. Forbear when you can, and if you can't, forgive. Why? Because it could be that there's an offense and you cannot get it out of your mind. And you try to forbear, and you try to forbear, here's what you need to do. You need to forgive. Forgiveness. Those of you who have been wronged in a deep way know the challenge of forgiveness. Those of you who have—you've heard angry words. Someone wasn't there for you at the time you needed them most. You felt abandoned. There was a promise, and it was broken. And you can rehearse that in your mind over and over and over again and you know what it's like to be hurt. And you know the challenge of forgiveness. How can we possibly do this? How can we possibly forgive? That's why this command is not just a command that's hacked off from any kind of power. The power for this command is right here in the passage. If anyone has a complaint against another forgiving each other, how as the Lord has forgiven you. You feel like a victim? Maybe you are. There's only one victim who is an absolutely innocent victim and that is Jesus Christ. There is only one who never ever sinned and yet was charged as if he had committed the sins of the world and that is Jesus Christ. That's why earlier in this chapter when Paul says you've been, you've been raised with Christ so set your minds on things above where he is. When you are struggling with forgiveness here's what you need to set your mind on. Set your mind on the fact that at, at the throne of the universe is one who is wronged more than you ever will be wronged and yet he is also the one who while bearing his wounds said this Father forgive them for they know not what they do. That's the forgiving love of Jesus. Forgiven people forgive people. People have been shown compassion and mercy, show compassion and mercy. I mean, how could you possibly do this for other people unless you've experienced it for yourself? And how can you possibly not hold in and, and, and uh, bring to yourself the acid of resentment unless you know the freedom of forgiveness? the wrong that someone has done to you could easily snowball in your life by latching into your mind and heart and distorting you into an angry person. Forgiveness means I will not let a sin of another person make me sin by the grace of God. Her sin will not control me by the grace of God. His words will not control me by the grace of God. I am free. Now forgiveness, forgiveness, when we've been forgiven by God, it's a one and done thing. God forgives us. But when we forgive other people, it is not the end of the story. It's the beginning of a battle. It requires that we consciously choose to not hold that person's sin as a justify, to justify our anger. It means letting it go. And that takes work every time you're tempted to think angry and resentful and vengeful thoughts. And the only way to do that, the only power for true forgiveness is being truly forgiven. That's why when Jesus taught us to pray in the Lord's Prayer, he says that we are to ask God to forgive us our trespasses as we forgive other people's trespasses. Why? Because only those who are forgiven can truly forgive. You know, these are the qualities that are bound together in verse four, as we read in verse 14, by love. You see, love is is something that is like the mortar that binds together the patience and the compassion and the meekness and the humility and the forgiveness and the forbearance. All these things are bound together by love. And furthermore, the the word that Paul uses here is a word that's related to the word for maturity. Remember, we're talking about this whole concept of maturity. Where does Christian maturity come from? Here's, Here's what a mature congregation, a mature family, a mature believer looks like they love. You know, it's easy for us to look back at Robert Owen's vision for New Harmony, Indiana, and think, man, he got it wrong. Humans can never get along with each other. We're always going to fight. Actually, Robert Owens was right about something. His intuition that human beings are meant to live in harmony with each other was right. He just went about it the wrong way. You see, God intends for there to be a people who will dwell with him in perfect harmony. But there is no harmony with other people. There is no true peace among others unless, first of all, there is peace with God. And that comes only through Jesus Christ. You see, the solution to our fractured relationships is not ultimately found in trying to mend them, but it's ultimately found in kneeling at the cross of Jesus Christ, who died for our sins. My friends, I've been speaking of life in Christ, that life in Christ means loving each other, but maybe you don't have life in Christ. Oh, you see this beautiful description of a harmonious community. What you need first of all is to come to grips with the fact that you are at such distance from God that you need someone who can bridge that and bring you to God and that is Jesus Christ. That is what he did on the cross when he died for you. You can believe on him today and be saved.